is Christ. In the Apostles' Creed, of course, we confess, I believe in the Holy Spirit. Now, I want to pose this question to you this afternoon. Do we really understand what we're saying when we confess this? And I think in some ways, in Reformed churches, we don't fully get it. One of the reasons I say that is because of how, easily it, how easy it is for us to be thrown off kilter, as it were, when we run into somebody, say, from a kind of a charismatic background or somebody from a non-reformed background, and they make all these claims about what the Holy Spirit is doing in their church and in their lives and in the world, and, and we get a little thrown off kilter by that. And I, I think in reformed churches, we don't know enough, or at least we don't live by our confessions enough when it comes to this area of understanding of the Holy Spirit of Christ. I think, I think we're fascinated by the Holy Spirit. We're intrigued by what we hear that the Holy Spirit can do. We're left a little bit baffled by the claims of charismatics, that they speak in tongues and some of them prophesy, or so they claim. But let's be honest, as Reformed people, we don't claim to have a lot of first-hand experience with him. And that's why I think we, we need, it's good that we, we come back to the, the catechism explanation of what it means when we confess, I believe in the Holy Spirit. And, and to do some serious reflection once again on this doctrine. Because, of course, at some point in our lives, we're going to run into these giddy people who are running around as if they have overdosed on Red Bull, claiming to have the Holy Spirit, or those who know about Him, but they don't really have a proper relationship with Him. And th there isn't that kind of dependence upon Him that there ought to be, especially for us. And so, again, what do we mean when we confess that I believe in the Holy Spirit? Who is He? What does He do for me? What good is it that He has come? And that's, those are some of the questions we'll look at as we look at Lord's Day 20 of our Heidelberg Catechism this afternoon under this theme, the church confesses the mysterious Holy Spirit. The church confesses the mysterious Holy Spirit. And so we'll ask two questions, two points. First of all, who is He? And secondly, why was He given? But we ask in the first place, who is the Holy Spirit? And let's refresh ourselves again with the first part of our catechism answer. First, He is, together with the Father and the Son, true and eternal God. And this is getting into the heart of the biblical doctrine, really, of the, of the Holy Trinity. That is, that we believe in one God, but within that one God, there are three persons. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We believe that these three persons are distinct as far as their work, but as to authority, power, glory, majesty, they are all equal. Each person of the Holy Trinity is true and unchangeably God, holy and divine. We believe, for instance, that God is eternal, that, he is, that is, that He has always existed, having no beginning, no end. God has revealed Himself, or He revealed Himself to Moses at the burning bush with, what was that name? Yahweh in the Hebrew, I am who I am. In other words, the one who is eternal, the one who is self-existent. And then we hear Jesus, the Son of God, say to the Jews of His day, before Abraham was, I am, taking that name to Himself. He was claiming 
eternality. That he too, like the Father, always existed. But then, of course, Christ ascends to his Father's right hand. And the Holy Spirit is poured out upon the earth. And he continues to do his work. That is, Christ continues to do his work through his Spirit. Turning masses of people from sin and self-righteousness to trust in him alone. And at first glance, we might almost, almost think that the Holy Spirit is just some powerful force. Uh, the energizing agent of, the, of, the, uh, of God, sort of like what the Jehovah's Witnesses claim him to be, until we come to verses in the New Testament like Hebrews 9 verse 14, where the Holy Spirit is called the eternal spirit. And it all begins to make sense. The Holy Spirit is also eternal God, having no beginning, no end, always existing. And it suddenly begins to fall together. For us, we remember what we re what we read in, in Genesis one verses one and two that at the very creation, at the very beginning, the Holy Spirit was there, hovering over the face of the waters, and we think of what we hear in Isaiah sixty three verse ten that the Israelites rebelled and grieved God's Holy Spirit, and we realize as we study and as we read the Bible more and more the. That the Holy Spirit is not merely some unseen force. He's not merely God's power. He's a personal being. Jesus spoke of him in personal pronouns. He spoke of he and him, not it. As even we sometimes will say, it'll slip out of our mouths as we're speaking of the Holy Spirit and we'll say it. Jesus himself speaks of the Holy Spirit as he and him. And just as God the Father can be grieved... As we read in Genesis 6 verse 5, so the spirit can be grieved. In fact, Paul cautions us in Ephesians 4 verse 30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. And speaking of grieving the Holy Spirit, Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians 3 verse 16, do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the spirit of God dwells in you? And again, on the one hand, we are temples of God. That is, we are God's holy tabernacle, his place of residence. On the other hand, Paul says that the Spirit of God dwells in us. That is, the Spirit of God has taken up residence in our hearts. And so when you put the two together, the only conclusion that you can logically come to is that the Spirit and God are one and the same, equally divine. We might also think of other attributes or characteristics of God which are clearly seen in the Bible in the Holy Spirit. We mentioned His eternality. But the Scriptures also ascribe to the Spirit holiness. In Romans 1 verse 4, He is called the Spirit of holiness. He's also ascribed uh, the, um, the attribute of omnipresence, able, that is, able to be everywhere, always. For instance, in Psalm 139, we hear in verses 7 to 12, in Psalm 139, verses 7 to 12, uh, David writes, Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, Surely the darkness shall cover me, 
and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you, for the night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. And so here, the, the Holy Spirit is attributed with the ability, omnipresence, uh, to the ability to be everywhere, always. Is God omniscient? That is, that He knows all things perfectly? That He possesses limitless knowledge? Listen to what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, verses 10 to 11. 1 Corinthians 2 Verses 10 to 11. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in, in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. And so everything the Father knows, the Spirit knows. Is God omnipotent? That is, possessing limitless power, so is the Holy Spirit. Think of the many times in the Old Testament we read of the Spirit of the Lord coming upon a particular individual like Gideon or Samson, enabling them to do marvelous, amazing, superhuman things. And think of the greatest miracle of all history, the conception of the Lord Jesus Christ in the womb of a virgin by the power of the Holy Spirit. And the point is, the Holy Spirit possesses all the attributes or characteristics of God, and He is God. In Isaiah 11, verse 2, we hear Him described as the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. And if any doubt remains, we have in Acts 5, what I think is the most explicit passage of all that teaches that the Spirit is eternal God. In Acts 5, the familiar story, of course, of uh, Ananias and Sapphira, the first four verses, we read this. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. And so here in one passage, we have the divinity of the Holy Spirit explicitly declared. On the one hand, Peter charges Ananias with lying to the Holy Spirit in verse 3. And then, very quickly in verse 4, he says to him, you have not lied to men, but to God. And so if, again, thinking logically, if lying to the Spirit is lying to God, then it simply follows that the Spirit is God. He is divine. And so who is the Holy Spirit? Together with the Father and the Son, He is true and eternal God. That is what we confess in our confession because that is what the Bible teaches. The Holy Spirit may work silently and without a lot of pomp and pageantry, not a lot of calling attention to Himself. He never really places Himself in the foreground. He never craves publicity. He never wants front page coverage. 
The Spirit works quietly but steadily. The Bible uses the image of, like, like it says, like the wind blowing without being seen. Or like oil pouring down someone's head. Like a dove descending. Like streams of water refreshing. Like tongues of, of fire alighting. These are some of the images used in Scripture of the Spirit of Christ and His work. But that's not to say that because the Spirit works quietly, that His work is of any less significance than the work of the Father and the Son. In fact, may it never be said that we give the Spirit any less honor in the Trinity. He is equally and fully God together with the Father and the Son. But as the church confesses the mysterious Holy Spirit, we also ask in the second place, why was he given? We confessed in our catechism, second, he is also given to me to make me, by true faith, share in Christ and all his benefits, to comfort me and to remain with me forever. And one of the things that we see immediately, and it's something that is uh, very obvious that people take notice of us uh, of very quickly with the Heidelberg Catechism is that it's, it's very personal. And one of the things we see immediately in this answer is that the, the Holy Spirit is not merely given to the church in a general sense. He is given to me, each Christian, personally. We can say this and say it boldly. If we truly believe and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have the Holy Spirit living in our hearts. It's a fact. Whether we feel it or not, if we truly believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, if we know that we are sinners and yet confess that Jesus alone, through His suffering and death on the cross, has paid for my sins and made me right with God, then we are in possession of the Holy Spirit. It's a fact. Paul reminds all the brethren in the Galatian church, that they received the Holy Spirit. He says it as a matter of fact in his writing to them. And so the Holy Spirit is a personal gift. In 2 Corinthians 1, verses 21 to 22, we hear that God has sealed us and given us the Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. And so the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, let's be reminded, is not only a church confession. It's not just a doctrine that we hold to in our church. It is a personal confession. It is my confession as a Christian. The Spirit has been given to me personally. So that, says the Catechism, by true faith, He makes me share in Christ and all His benefits. That's what the Spirit does. He makes me share in Christ and all His benefits. Believe it or not, don't take it seriously when people talk about people being slain in the Spirit and people rolling around on the ground and bursting into laughter because they were filled with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit came to give faith in Jesus Christ, to point us to Christ and to enable us to share in all the benefits of Christ. What did Jesus himself say of the Holy Spirit? He will testify about me. Again, does not draw attention to himself, doesn't want front page coverage. He wants to point us to Jesus. That's what the Spirit does. Faith, of course, is created in us by the Holy Spirit. And faith is that instrument by which we take hold of Christ and all his benefits. And without the Holy Spirit giving us faith, 
which is sure knowledge and firm confidence, without the Holy Spirit giving us that faith, we would have no relationship with Jesus Christ. What did Paul say? No one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Apart from the working of the Holy Spirit in each of us, personally, we would continue to be spiritual deserts. It is the Spirit who descends like refreshing dew upon our parched souls, creating faith in our hearts through the preaching of the Word, calling us, convicting us, converting us. And by this true faith, He makes us share in Christ and all His benefits. Well, what benefits are we speaking of here? Some people believe it's the ability to speak in tongues or to prophesy. And if you mean by tongues, specific understandable language, and if by prophecies you mean direct messages from God, then certainly we will not deny that the Spirit gave these gifts in the days of the early church for the advancement of the gospel message. But as Paul indicated in 1 Corinthians 13, the time of prophecies and tongues would come to an end, to a close. With the completion of the scriptures, there is no need for further revelation, for further prophecy. We have all we need in God's holy word. What more can he say than to us he has said in his word? And tongues were given... To use the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 22, tongues were given as a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. And so, let's be frank and let's be clear, maybe a little bit blunt, maybe too blunt for some people, but let's say this. What is sold today as tongues and prophesying in many, many circles today is nothing more than self-indulgent Self-deluding gibberish, simple, childish emotionalism. And so if the, Holy, if the gifts, the benefits of the Holy Spirit are not these things, then what? what? What are the gifts that we're talking about? What are the blessings that he makes me share that belongs to Christ? Well, all that Christ has earned, all that Christ has accomplished on our behalf on the cross. And so we're talking about things like adoption, justification, reconciliation with God, sanctification, the promise of glorification, all these become ours through faith created in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. For instance, Paul writes in Romans 8, verses 15 to 17. Romans 8, verses 15 to 17. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we also may be glorified with him. And so one of the blessings that Christ has earned for us is adoption. The true and living God has become our Father. We who were restless wanderers, especially us Gentiles, we have now become the people of God. 
Peter writes in 1 Peter 2, in fact, that once we were not a people, but now we have become the children of God. We have been called out of darkness into His marvelous light. And the Holy Spirit is the one who does that. He enables us to know God as our Father and to enjoy an intimate, loving relationship with Him as His adopted children. The alienation from God that came upon us since the fall in the Garden of Eden has now turned into reconciliation through the work of the Spirit. No longer are we strangers and enemies of God. Now, Scripture reading in Galatians 3, we heard that the blessing of Abraham has come to us. The blessing is that we have been justified by faith. God has given us faith by His Holy Spirit. And having believed, we are justified. That is, we are declared righteous before the holy throne of God. We are forgiven of all our sins through Christ's perfect work. And this work becomes ours through the working of the Holy Spirit. Christ, Paul, Paul uh, writes in verse 13 of our passage, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. And through faith, created in us by the Holy Spirit, that redemption becomes ours. Because the, the Holy Spirit is a personal spirit, we also share in the benefit of being sanctified. By the power of His Spirit, Christ is continually cleansing us, renewing us, restoring us to His image. And we begin to see what Paul calls the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. We begin to see these being manifested in our lives more and more. Things like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. We begin to see these things manifesting themselves in our lives more and more through the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit enables us to share in these because of another benefit of Christ. That is the end of sin's reign in our lives. Paul often used, as we just heard in Romans 8 as well too, he often uses the image of slavery to depict our former sinful nature. And he shows us time and again that sin before our conversion, sin was our master. And we just did its bidding. Like addicts that must obey the command of the drug, whether it's heroin or cocaine or fentanyl or whatever it may be, or meth, like, like addicts that must obey the command of that drug, we were unable, before the Holy Spirit made His home in our hearts, we were unable and unwilling to resist God's or sin's call. But now in Christ, sin no longer holds the reins to our hearts. Before the Spirit made His home in our hearts, the lying tongue, the sowing discord among brethren, the feet that were swift to rush into evil, those things didn't bother us one bit. But now, when the Spirit comes to live in our hearts, when we slip and we stumble, we hate it. We sin, certainly, but we don't like it. There's been a change in our attitude towards sin. And we say with the Apostle Paul, now if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me. That becomes very clear to us. And all these benefits of Christ, including, and we can go on and on, but including the ability to pray, confidence of our resurrection, the ability to persevere in our faith, all of these benefits won for us by Christ, 
are ours by the working of the Holy Spirit. But the Catechism goes on to mention that because the Spirit has been given to me personally, He also comforts me. That reminds us of the words of Jesus, doesn't it? What did He say? I will never leave you nor forsake you. I will not leave you as orphans. He said that in John 14, verse 18. He says, I will come to you. And through His Spirit, that promise of Jesus has been fulfilled. He stands alongside of us. And how we need this in this life of uncertainty, where our lives can come apart at the seams with just one phone call, one doctor visit, one blood test, one x-ray, our life can just begin to come apart at the seams. We need the Holy Spirit standing near to us, coming alongside of us, and carrying us through all the difficulties that we face through this life. As we continue our pilgrimage in this world, where grief, disappointment, and heartbreak can raise their ugly heads without warning, what a comfort it is that Christ by His Holy Spirit is always near us. Often in more ways than we even realize. And not only is He here today or tomorrow, but He, as the Catechism reminds us, remains with me forever as we confess. Think about it. Does it make any sense that the Son of God would forsake or abandon those for whom He died? Would Christ take His Spirit from His chosen children? Sooner would a mother forget the baby she nursed. Sooner would a father give a stone to his son who asked for bread than Christ would ever take His Spirit from us. And so congregation, let's begin to conclude with this question. Not what do you believe concerning the Holy Spirit, but this. Do you believe in the Holy Spirit? It's a valid question for us. Do you believe that the Holy Spirit is in you? That He has been given to you personally? That He is working in your lives right now to help you to love Jesus? Which is the purpose, the main purpose from which he, for which He came. Do you believe that the Holy Spirit is now calling you to respond to God's promises made to you at your baptism and the promises that you have made at your profession of faith to turn from the world and to take up your cross and to follow Christ? And this applies to every one of us, from the youngest here to the oldest, from the young adults to our parents, our singles, our grandparents. Do we believe that the Holy Spirit of Christ lives in us so that every day we have the ability and the opportunity to serve Christ and to worship Him. And to be a godly example to each other and to the world. And to be salt and light and leaven in a world that is no friend to Christ. In a dying, sad and hostile world. That the Spirit give up, gives us the ability every day to live out our ministry in this world. Do we believe that the Holy Spirit living in us is able to give us the strength to fight against the sins in our lives? Do we believe that? And people of God, let us believe it with all our hearts. In His mysterious, 
unseen ways, working without a lot of pomp and pageantry, the Holy Spirit is diligently working in our hearts, preparing us, perfecting us, ensuring that we do enjoy all the benefits that Christ our Savior has won for us. Tirelessly, all through the church age, He is glorifying the Son. He is building His people into a beautiful temple. He is applying the work of Christ to the hearts of His people. He is moving the church ever forward. And so let us lean on Him as we pray. Let us depend on Him as we seek after greater holiness. Because in the Holy Spirit of Christ, we have a very special and a very powerful ally and friend. Amen.